0: Hello, hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. I am your Librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library of books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and I tell you what I think of them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, let me know what you think in the comments. It is the last Sunday of the month, which means it is time for another book about a president, in this case the 12th president to serve Zachary Taylor, which makes this week's book of the week Zachary Taylor. Soldier, Planter, Statesman of the Old Southwest by K. Jack Bauer. And the accompanying cocktail is, appropriately enough, called Old Rough and Ready. And it is torch time, two ounces of Kentucky bourbon, three-quarters ounce of lemon, three-quarter ounce honey syrup, a dash of orange bitters, and lemon to garnish. So let's do this. Now, torch time, incidentally, means you take some time and you burn it, and then you put the glass over it. I do have my husband standing by with the... Um, fire extinguisher is a safety precaution because alcohol, fire, and a shit ton of books is a recipe for disaster. So if you're going to try a torch cocktail, recommend safety first, okay? We'll start by torching the time here right off. So basically you're supposed to just burn it once you get it burning 12th president of the United States Zachary Taylor was born November 24 1784 at Montebello plantation in Virginia now this was a family friends plantation his family didn't own it his father had been granted a thousand acres in Kentucky just outside of Louisville however Zachary Taylor's mother Sarah was too pregnant to make that trip when the land grant came through so she stayed at Montebello while Richard Taylor went ahead to, to start preparing the house and land and she gave birth to Zachary in Virginia she gave birth in Virginia. At this time, Kentucky is rapidly growing and is a rapidly growing state. And during Taylor's childhood, Louisville went from being sort of this frontier outpost to a full city that was well known for its whiskey distilleries and tobacco crops. So maybe that's why we're doing Kentucky bourbon on this one, because you know, Kentucky. So they knew they were good known for their distilleries and their tobacco. Taylor was the third son. He had two older brothers, which meant both of them were more in line for inheritance than he was, so lacking other prospects, and probably because his father Richard did fight in the American Revolution, he looked for a military career. Uh, He he had neither the desire nor inclination nor even necessarily the means to go to college. I mean, they might have scraped together the money, but he wasn't interested in that, so he didn't force it, and his parents didn't force it. He decided he was going to be a military man. So while he did not have a college education, and he was not expected to inherit much, his family did have some money, and Richard Taylor put that to use by reaching out to his connections and securing Zachary Taylor a position as a commissioned officer. And so Taylor was appointed first lieutenant of the 7th Infantry on May 3rd, 1808, with a pay of $30 per month and two meals per day, which at that time was fairly decent. I think adjusted for inflation, it's about $675 per month, which doesn't sound like much granted, but... $30 $30 went a hell of a lot further back then than it does today. Thank you for the gold standard that used to exist. Three quarters oh. ounce of a lemon. Taylor was a competent military leader. He was not necessarily a brilliant one, but he was competent. Uh, and one, most of his successes in the military seemed to stem from common sense, right? So when he arrived at an outpost, if he saw the men sort of lazing about in the post in disarray, he stepped in and commanded them to perform daily drills, he organized the post, he brought everything back online, and this earned him a reputation of competence. Uh, Not a bad reputation to have in the military, not today, not back then, but he was known as competent. And that put him in a good position when Fort Harrison was attacked by Tecumseh in September of 1812. Now Taylor had missed the Battle of Tippecanoe when he was called to testify before Congress on behalf of James Wilkinson, who at that time was believed to be a Spanish spy. Not the topic of this book. Wilkinson was totally a Spanish spy who was found not guilty of being a Spanish spy. So good job there 12th Congress of the United States. So Taylor spends two years in command of Fort Howard in Michigan territory before being sent to the southwestern portion of the United States. Again, southwest at this time was not Arizona, New Mexico, it was Louisiana, the eastern part of Texas, Missouri, Arkansas, that was southwestern United States. And so that's where he was sent, and he was there for to establish a new outpost, which he did with Fort Jessup, who was named after, I wanna say it was one of his mentors, General Jessup. He was then transferred to Baton Rouge, where he spent two years. Now, throughout all of this, Taylor's acquiring land and stocks. When, when he married his wife, Mar- his wife Margaret Peggy Mackle Smith, on June 10th of 1810, his father gifted him 300 acres from the family plantation that was outside of Louisville. Three quarters of an ounce of honey syrup, so I have to eyeball it because, well, my specific measuring cup broke. It was very sad, so now I'm just slinging it like I know what I'm doing. I do not. Damn, Kentucky bourbon's good. Way to go, Kentucky. I've never had Kentucky bourbon, but damn, that's tasty. I've had Jack Daniels, but that's Tennessee, so here we go. So Taylor inherits his 300 acres and he uses that to kind of launch himself as a landowner and uh, capitalist. He, He began investing and he began farming. And one of the things he learned very well from his military career was when and how to delegate. And he had a knack for picking the right person to delegate to. And so his land holdings were very prosperous because he just knew, I, I don't know how he knew, but something he, he picked up either from his father, from the military, from family, from friends, he knew how to find the right person for the right job and put him in that position. And while he was consistently worried about money and resented the profit rank system, he was actually pretty good with money. I mean, when he died, he was worth about $200,000, which in, th- this, this book was written in 1983, so that was about $3 million in 1983. That's pretty solid. So he, he was worried about money, but he was very good with it. He was, he was good at consolidating those, those um, that, that income stream. Uh, Brevet ranking, let me explain that, because I had to look it up, he talks about it in the book like we all know what it is, no idea, I had to Google that. The brevet ranking system basically means that you get the rank of the next highest level, but not the pay to go with it. So, you, let's see here, you might be a captain with a brevet rank of major, which means you're working as a major, you have all the rights and responsibilities of a major, but you don't have the pay of a major, you have the pay of a captain. Weirdly enough, Taylor really resented this because he was brevet-ranked quite frequently, so he didn't get the pay that went with it. <laughs> um, it's like being asked to do your supervisor's job. Your supervisor's getting all the credit, and you're getting just the job. So, that, yeah. I, I don't blame him. I don't blame him. Um, it was the government's way of cheating a soldier out of pay while making him do more work. Taylor hated it. Pretty much everyone who held the brevet rank hated it. Uh, because they held the brevet rank and they did the extra work, The commensurate pay would not come online until someone who held the rank that they were aspiring to retired or Congress approved the funds to pay the higher rank. And guess how much either of those two things happened. So in May 1828, Taylor is called back to Michigan territory and placed in charge of Fort Snelling. He was promoted to colonel, not brevet, actual colonel of the 1st Infantry Regiment in April 1832. And this was just in time for the Black Hawk War in the West, and four short months later, Taylor had managed to essentially win the war. Uh, he chased Chief Blackhawk and his followers, had been crushed, the American expansion in the Northwest was assured. And during this time, Taylor's youngest daughter, who was the apple of his eye, Sarah Knox Taylor, married future president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis. Now, unfortunately, she died three months later. However, Davis sort of became one of the family during this time. I, I mean, Taylor didn't approve of the marriage, not because he didn't approve of Davis, but because he didn't want his daughter to be a military wife. So, even though they were only married for three months before she died, Davis became kind of one of the family and Davis was actually present when Taylor died. Yeah, the smoking did not work out so well for me. The time just wasn't dry enough, I don't think, so it didn't burn. Following his success with the Black Hawk War, Taylor was sent to Florida in 1837 for the Second Seminole War. need a Dash of orange bitter. Boy, that's just a dash. A dash is such an undefined term. It's just undefined. Give me a moment, I have to shake. Fresh ice in my vaguely smoked glass. It's not as smoked as it could be, like the demonstration videos I watched on YouTube. Like smoke filled everything and it looked awesome. This does not look as awesome. You can smell the smoke. Okay, it's it's half-ass smoked. lemon juice in the eye is going to make for a really odd video with lots of crying. Following his success with the Black Hawk War, Taylor sent to Florida in 1837 for the second Seminole War. Now, by this time, the Trail of Tears is well underway, implemented by Jackson and Van, uh, Van Buren. And the Seminoles are resisting relocation with all their might. They want no part of this. They're pretty sure that Florida was there as well before White Man came, and they don't want to go. And they got a lot of might, because they literally lived in Florida for, what, centuries before we got there? And so all of the hiding places were well known to the Seminoles. And so they were fighting a very effective guerrilla war. war. So Taylor, when he gets there, he builds Fort's Gardner and Basinger, and also implemented his... Squares plan, which was to build and maintain outposts every 20 miles that were maintained by about 20 soldiers with one captain over them. And this basically ensured infiltration of Seminole territory and made hiding in the swamps more difficult for the Indians or the Native Americans. It also ensured that settlers were within easy reach of military assistance should the Seminoles attack. Following his time in Florida, this was incidentally very effective. Taylor was pretty much able to... uh, not quite wipe out, but make significant inroads in the Seminole. And more and more of them started leaving to the West as they had been dictated by Jackson's freaking policies. So, Mm, I like that. Oh, yeah. God, I kind of wonder what it would taste like if I had gotten more time in there, more of that smokiness in there. Following his time in Florida, Taylor asked for and was granted a one year leave of absence during which time he visited his extensive land holdings by this time in addition to his 300 acres in kentucky he owned several plantations in louisiana and yes taylor was a slave owner he did not inherit any slaves he purchased them outright to work his farms Um, he's kind of odd like this though he considered himself a jeffersonian political he never voted in an election isn't that interesting but he followed jefferson politics I mean, he, he got his commission from Madison in, a, uh, wait, Madison, hold on, no, it would have been Jefferson, yeah, because Madison was voted in in 1808, but May 3rd of 1808, so still would have been Jefferson Church, so he got his commission from Jefferson, he considered himself a Jeffersonian political. So here it gets a little muddy, because even at that time, everyone knew that while Jefferson owned slaves... He did not consider the institution of slavery to be evil, or excuse me, he did consider the institution of slavery to be evil, my god, maybe he didn't, I mean he did own slaves, but he professed to consider it evil and thought that slavery should be abolished. So from that perspective, if you don't own slaves and you think that slavery should be abolished, why would you buy slaves to begin with? For whatever reason, Taylor did, and he had them work his land. But here is something, he he seemed to really embrace that old school Southern paternalism, which is one of and as one of the landed gentry who took seriously the care of his property, his slaves were fed meat and milk and they had dedicated vegetable patches that were theirs to cultivate and supplement their diets with fresh greens in addition to the meat and milk provided by Taylor. And Taylor believed that healthy slaves worked better, so when one was injured or sick, he provided them with good medical care and assisted that they be fully recovered before returning to work. So, I mean, as far as slave owners go, he was okay. I mean, free housing, free food, free medical care, free clothing. I mean, all of those are socialist pipe dreams, right? Just know that slaves had all of that, but they didn't have freedom. So you can keep chasing all of your free shit. I myself will pick freedom. You pick your poison. Uh, I'll, I'll get off that soapbox now. So 1844, President Taylor is working diligently on annexing. President Tyler is working diligently on annexing Texas, and in anticipation of that annexation, Taylor is sent to Fort Jessup in Louisiana, and that's basically where he's going to wait until the annexation is completed, so that he can go in and secure Texas for Texans in America. And he waits. In 1845, Polk is sworn into office and Taylor is still waiting. And then, so he's man on the ground when Polk says, okay, we need somebody to move in and secure the Rio Grande. We want the Rio Grande to be our southern border, not the Nueces River, which is, I think, what Mexico wanted. So 1846, he's sent into the Rio Grande, and that's where he's at when Mexico takes offense to the fact that Polk has arbitrarily decided that the Rio Grande is where our southern border is, and the Mexican-American War starts. And Polk is not consistent in the orders he's given in the directives, which leaves Taylor to kind of do his best with the mixed messages and orders that are delayed by distance in an era pre-telephone and pre-internet. Yes, they had the telegraph, but telegraph lines had not been strung to Texas, so messages were sent via courier, which could take months. So by the time action has already happened, new orders could be on the way that countermanded what that action was. Taylor, by this time, has been promoted to general. Not, again, I don't believe Brevet, he was just a full general. And while he was capable general, again, he was not a brilliant commander. Common sense seemed to be his order of the day. And while it could certainly be argued that General Scott, who was also on scene, but not the ranking general, was more tactically inclined and a better general in overall, like he, he was one of those brilliant, like intuitive leaders, Taylor had something that Scott did not have and that is that Taylor's men loved him. During the Seminole Wars in Florida, Taylor earned the nickname Old Rough and Ready, hence the cocktail. And owing to his pensions for digging into the dirt with the men. That's how he earned that. He he lived with them. He didn't just when he got to an outpost, he didn't just say, "Well, you guys do this and you guys do this and I'm going to sit in my study and have scotch or bourbon, as the case may be." Um he would build it with them. He was there in the dirt you know dirt under his fingernails he would help you know dig out trenches erect palisades plant crops he when when they had field maneuvers he camped with his men he didn't have himself keep himself separate he was very much part of them uh, so much so that when new arrivals would show up taylor was frequently mistaken for being one of the other troops an impression which he played up by highlighting his kind of country accent and he thought it was hilarious that new troops didn't recognize him as the commander because he was too busy working Mm-mm. So Taylor commanded forces at the Rio Grande and the battles of Palo Alto and Resaca de la Palma, defeating Mexican forces each time, but not following through on, on a route, right? If, if your enemy starts fleeing, the usual tactic was to chase them down, make sure of the victory. He wouldn't do that. He, he would basically stop at wherever the designated line was. And I think, I think his understanding of the orders given to him by Polk was to defend American territory, which Texas was at that time, not to invade a foreign country. And ultimately, the invasion took place under orders, and Taylor pushed through to Monterey, where American forces were outnumbered three to one. And despite these odds, Taylor still won, though uh, I mean, through a combination of picking good defensible territory and using smaller groups to attack rather than charging out in force. After the battle, Taylor had a hard time enforcing discipline on the troops, especially the Texas militia. Uh, I mean, even a decade later, they were were smarting over the loss of the Alamo, and they kept attacking the local people, which Taylor didn't want, but he had a hard time enforcing that discipline. And by November 1847, the war was effectively over, at least for Taylor. I think there were still a few more battles that went on to be won by General Scott, but Taylor was done with the fighting. He was recalled to Baton Rouge where he received a hero's welcome, and his name starts being kind of bandied about as a possible candidate for the 1848 election, which Taylor genuinely did not seem to want. He, he had no desire to be in politics. He said he never voted. He considered himself a Jeffersonian and definitely thought the country was moving away from Jefferson politics. I think he may have been the first and last president who genuinely didn't want the office, which makes it a crying shame that he died so early because generally, Was that saying, those who seek power are rarely suited to hold it? Well, he didn't seek power. He didn't want it. Prior to Jackson, it was politic to pretend like you didn't want the presidency, but would serve if called upon to do so. Taylor definitely didn't want it, and I don't think he was pretending. Um, The reason I don't think he was pretending is is the mail system. In the 19th century, mail was always sent postage due. So if you didn't want to be bothered, you told the post office, don't deliver any mail that's postage due. And... The letter would then be kept by the post office in a dead letter pile. And that is where Taylor's nomination letter sat for a month after the Whigs nominated him. He didn't know he was the nominee until somebody showed up on his doorstep and said, Hey, we need your confirmation that you're going to accept this position because we've nominated you. And if you don't want it, we got to nominate somebody else. So at that time, he went to the post office, retrieved the nomination letter and accepted the nomination, but he refused to campaign. I mean, he basically, he did everything he could to throw roadblocks and say, this isn't what I want, I don't want to do this, but if the people insist, I'll do it. And they did. And he left the campaigning up to everybody else. Um, All members of the Whig Party had to campaign for him, including one-term Congressman Abraham Lincoln, who was fine with Taylor being a slave owner as long as he didn't insist on that Missouri compromise line of 3630 being extended all the way to the Pacific Ocean. November 7, 1848, Taylor and running mate Millard Fillmore are elected to the White House. Taylor resigns his commission in the U.S. Army effective February 28, 1849. President Polk accepted his resignation effective January 31, 1849, and Polk did not leave any indication as to why he accepted the resignation 30 days early. Then Taylor was sworn in on March 4, 1849. Uh, Taylor, having spent his entire career in the military, immediately set out choosing cabinet members that he could delegate work to, especially the problem of patronage, which he found abhorrently distasteful. Unfortunately, so did members of his cabinet, and at least one resigned or refused the position because he didn't want to deal with patronage requests. His first year in office was spent dealing with several funerals, including former President Polk, who died two months after stepping down and former First Lady Dolly Madison. And I believe Taylor was the first one to coin the phrase First Lady. And that's been, the the wife of the President has been known as First Lady ever since. And the matter of dissolution of the Union was the primary call of the day, and that was increasingly more likely. And in true keeping with his Jeffersonian principles, Taylor refused to extend slavery to any territory, leaving it up to the territories themselves to decide if they wanted slavery. And California was rapidly preparing their constitution and petitioning to join the United States as a non-slave-owning state. The Mormons, who had taken over Utah territory, wanted to maintain a sovereign nation between the Sierra Nevadas and the Rocky Mountains all the way north of the Canadian border and leaving themselves an access route to the Pacific Ocean through California. Now, that was a weird dream because there's, I can't imagine it. I mean, my God, we, we rolled in and stole the entire continent from the indigenous people, but Utah thinks we're going to let them form their own like country right in the middle of ours. That was, that was dumb. I don't know. I feel like I need to know more about Utah now. But by and large, I, I mean, okay, so Utah did eventually petition to join the United States, and their petition was rejected for several decades, probably owing to the polygamy which was allowed under Mormon religion at that time. Now, by and large, Taylor was a hands-off president. He trusted Congress to do their job, which was probably a bit of a little bit naive and a bit of misplaced trust. Because he was a political neophyte, Taylor did not have a line into Congress, which meant that he was really not kept up to speed on what debates were ongoing in Congress. The ongoing debate of slavery and abolitionism was kind of the defining issue of the day um, going on to July 4th, 1850, when Taylor attended a series of orations, which basically just means public speaking at, which occurred at the Washington Monument, which was then under construction. And he drank iced water and chilled milk and ate cherries before walking home. Now, all of these things at that time had been advised to be avoided because of the potential outbreak of cholera. But he drank the water, drank the milk, ate the cherries. And the next day he had fallen ill and doctors were called in and he grew steadily worse dying on July 9th, 1850, his last words were, I have always done my duty, I am ready to die, my only regret is the friends I leave behind me. Which is pretty solid for last words. I think that most people who are cognizant of the fact they are dying, feel the same way, right? I mean, they, they they feel that they have lived their best life, mostly. There are regrets. Most people regret the things they haven't done versus the things they have, incidentally but mostly they regret those they're leaving behind. So that's pretty solid. Taylor was the second sitting president to die in office and it was cholera he died of. The symptoms he exhibited were all classic signs of cholera. Uh, Not mentioned in this book, but something I know from reading Dead Men Do Tell Tales a few months ago by William R. Maples is that sometime after his death, it was rumored that Taylor had been poisoned by arsenic, which shares some similar symptoms to cholera. Uh, which would have made him the first president to die by assassination, which is not true, incidentally. Um, In Dead Men Do Tell Tales, Maples relays the story where he was approached to conduct an autopsy on the former president to determine if poison was a viable means of his death. And after obtaining all the required releases and forms from every existing member of the Taylor clan today and the U.S. government, because Taylor was a former president and was buried on federal land, it was determined that Taylor died of cholera. So a lot of time and effort to solve a non-existent mystery, but a you know, fun anecdote, I guess. I think that Taylor was a capable administrator. I mean, if not brilliant himself, he, his entire life he had a knack for putting the right person in the right job. And shortly before his death, he had reconfigured his cabinet and assembled a team of like, truly brilliant statesmen and politicians consisting of Edward Stanley, a secretary of war, John Bell as attorney general, Hamilton Fish as Secretary of Treasury, and John Crichtenden as Secretary of State. And these four were powerhouses of the day. They were highly capable in the roles they had been assigned to. And because Taylor was not a micromanager, if they had been left as the cabinet on Taylor's death, I mean, who knows? Who knows what would have been accomplished? Um, But Taylor died, Fillmore stepped in, and that's the story for next month because I don't know what Taylor did from there. Overall, this book was okay, Um, and I don't blame the author for that. I think he did the best possible job he could with the sources he had available, and what I mean by that is usually when writing about a president, the author depends on primary documents, right? Letters that were written to and from the man himself to kind of help flesh out his character. And so far, all of the biographies I've written have done exactly that because there's a wealth of documents available written by these former presidents and to them. That tell you the story of who they were, right? During the Civil War, all of Taylor's personal documents were burned when Union troops overran his family plantation. So there are no primary documents, which means that a lot of what is written here is conjecture from things other contemporaries had written, both good and bad. And the author is meticulous in detailing that he'll say this is what the rumor was this is what was said at the time this is what was this is what people believed right but we don't know because a lot of that primary source is gone so the historians lament i still regret the burning of the library at alexandria god damn it it could be a fucking martian princess right now if they hadn't burned alexandria jefferson davis for example had a high opinion of taylor president polk did not and so we are left somewhere in the middle, which is probably honestly more accurate than either Davis or Polk's opinion because nobody is all good or all bad. It's always the sum of the parts that makes the whole person. And it's hard to rank him as president because we lack those primary documents that tell us who he really was, though. I mean, he died one and a half years in office, which is slightly better than Harrison's 30 days in office. But Harrison's record was unarguably dark, and we still had those primary documents that said he's, he had dirty land dealings with the Native tribes, and I, that, that's what drops me near the bottom of my list, right? Taylor seemed very much to be an honest man with a genuine sense of fair play, I and mean, he believed treaty lines should be enforced, and he enforced it on both Native Americans and settlers. He wouldn't let the settlers cross that treaty line into Native land either. And despite owning slaves himself, he did believe that slavery should be abolished and refused to enforce slavery on incoming territories. So, I think I'll rank him ninth. He'll be above Martin Van Buren, but below Monroe. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes the best talent in the world is knowing who to assign to which job, which includes himself. He did not seek the presidency, but when called upon to serve, he did. He answered that call. So... I don't know. I feel like we will never know who he was because so much was lost to history with the Civil War. And that's a shame. That's it for this week. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and I will see you guys next week. Bye.